Well, good morning. It is good to see you today. If you have a Bible, go ahead and meet me in 1 Peter chapter 3. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 3 is where we will spend our time together this morning. If this is your first time with us, if you're new with us, uh, let me just say a special uh, welcome to you, and I'm glad that you are here, uh, glad that you've come to worship with us this morning. It's, uh, it's always our hope and our prayer uh, that uh, Sundays are a blessing uh, for you uh, and for us, and so we hope that you will be blessed this morning. Uh, now, you heard Raina mention earlier uh, that this evening at 6 o'clock uh, is our uh, core rally our last core rally of the year. And so I hope that you're making plans to come and be with us. Uh, We have just wrapped up our Imagine initiative, kind of kicking that off really. And so we've got an important update we want to share with you tonight about that. And so I hope that you will come and you'll celebrate and we will get to hear ways that we're already involved in planting churches right here in our own community and some new ways that we can get involved in planting churches uh, around the nation. But I hope that you will be here tonight, uh, well-rested after that extra hour of sleep last night. Can I get an amen uh, from someone? I, I told the first service, I said, look, uh, we got an extra hour of sleep last night, which means I get to preach an extra week on Imagine this week, uh, and uh, but not really. We're going to be back in First Peter chapter 3, picking up right where we left off uh, at the end of September, and uh, this will take us uh, through the next several weeks. So First Peter chapter 3, uh, we're going to look at verses 8 through 12 this morning. You know, I, I I learned some things. I think everyone learned some things as we walked through a COVID pandemic that felt like, in many ways, it feels like it was a lifetime ago. In some ways, it feels like it just happened yesterday. But one of the things that, that I think that that revealed and that I learned in that is that typically, stress does not create as much as it reveals what is already there. Right? That, that stress really, it reveals the problems that are already there underlying the surface. This is why if you think about a stress test, right? A stress test it isn't designed to create new cardiac problems for you as much as it is to, to put your heart under some stress and to find the problems that are already there. And I think that lesson is true, not just when it comes to health and not just when it comes to organizations or others. I think it's true in every area of life. That oftentimes when we encounter stress, when we, uh, we feel stress, that what it does is it reveals what is already true about us. It, it reveals what is already true, what is already happening inside of us. I, I think this is true in, in most areas, maybe every area of life. And I think this is especially true when it comes to our faith. That whenever we are put under stress, what happens is, is it reveals some truths about our, uh, our faith. And typically... That stress to our faith, it comes when we are walking through suffering. When we're experiencing suffering, that's, that's who Peter's writing to here. He's writing to this group of Christians who are experiencing some pretty significant suffering. And what he shows us here is that suffering reveals the authenticity of our faith. That suffering reveals the authenticity of our faith. And as we, we walk through this passage, what we're going to see is we're going to see a couple ways that Peter shows us that the authenticity of our faith is displayed or the, the authenticity of our faith is experienced. So look with me here at 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 8 and read down to verse 12. Let me invite you to stand as we honor the reading of God's perfect and precious word. Starting here in verse 8, the Spirit says to us this, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, 
brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are, upon, are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. This is God's word. You can be seated. Would you pray with me? Father, we, we come before you grateful for your grace. Father, we come before you grateful for your mercy. And Father, we, we pray now that you would speak to us through your word. Father, we pray that you would encourage us and that you would equip us and you would change us. Father, we, we pray this and we ask this through Jesus Christ, our Lord. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. As we think about this idea that suffering reveals the authenticity of our faith, we're going to see a couple ways that, that Peter calls us to or that he encourages us to uh, practice this, uh, this authenticity. And so the first way is this, is that we've been called to love authentically. Love authentically. The mark of a Christian should be this, right? If a Christian is going to be marked by anything, well, then we should be marked by authentic love. We should be marked by authentic love for one another. Jesus, he said that they will know you, they will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another, that we should be marked by this authentic love, but not just for one another, we should be marked by an authentic love for the world. We should be marked by an authentic love for people. And see, as we suffer, what happens is we reveal whether our love and our faith is authentic. Now, we've already said First Peter, this is a, a letter written by the Apostle Peter. He's writing to a group of believers who are struggling, a group of believers who are suffering. And maybe this is your first week with us. Maybe you're, you're new to First Peter or we've taken a break. And so maybe you're trying to remember all right, what was going on in this letter when we took a break. Well, if you remember back to the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3, through the entire letter, Peter's been writing to this larger group of Christians who are struggling and who are suffering. Well, then the, these last few sections of chapter 2 and into chapter 3, what happens is, is he begins to address very distinct groups of believers, very distinct groups of Christians. And what he does is he starts broad and he narrows it down through those three sections. So first, he addresses citizens who they're suffering under the rule of an unbelieving emperor. And then he begins to address slaves who, who suffer under the harsh rule of an unbelieving master. And then finally, he gets a little more narrow and he starts addressing wives who are married to harsh and unbelieving husbands. And now what he's going to do is he's going to turn his attention back to the broad. He's going to speak to the entire category, the entire group, the entire uh, church, the entire assembly. And so look, look here at verse 8. He says, finally, now you can tell just by looking at it, this isn't the end of a letter. So like, Peter, what are you doing? Are you like a preacher who is going to say to conclude and then go on for 20 minutes, right? I don't know anyone who does that, but, uh, but Peter, is that, is that what you're going to do? Well, no, what he's doing is he's drawing this section to a close. He says, finally, all of you. 
He says, look, I, I've, talked to, I've talked to this group and this group and this group, but he says, now I'm going to address all of you. I, I'm going to address the, the entire audience, the, the entire group that would, that would read this letter, the, the entire gathering of that church. And so he turns his attention to that community, and he lists five characteristics to be true of all believers all the time. Look there, verse 8. He says, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. What he's saying, he's saying, look, understand this. Suffering is not an excuse to forsake righteousness. Suffering is not an excuse to live like the world. And so he gives these attributes. And now, notice that all of these attributes, they're outward-facing attributes. So these are attributes that can only be seen and can only be practiced in the context of a relationship. In fact, what he's saying here is they can only be seen, they can only be practiced in the context of the community of faith. And so he says, unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Now understand, these were meant to strengthen the community. But if we just read these as a checklist of, well, this is true of me, and this is true of me, this is true of me, or I'm going to do this today, and this today, and this today, then we're going to misunderstand what Peter's doing here. Because Peter's not giving us a, a list of things to check off or a list of things to do. In fact, I think what Peter's doing is he's really just making one point, but he's doing it in a way that his audience would have understood. So in ancient literature, there, there was a, this literary device it's called a chiasm. So what this is, there's a chiastic structure. Now, you'll need to know that for the test at the end of the sermon, but uh, if you want to get out, that's, that's all you'll need, right? But what this is, is Peter's writing this in such a way to point our attention, not to the list as a whole, but to point our attention to what is happening, happening in the middle of the list. He says, finally, all of you essentially practice brotherly love. Look at, look at those lists of those lists of characteristics. The first one is have unity of mind. Well, look at what the last one says. A humble mind, right? They, they're grouped together. Then after unity of mind, he says have sympathy. Well, look at the next to last one. It's a tender heart. You can have sympathy without a tender heart. It points us to the middle. It brings us to the middle, which is brotherly love. What does brotherly love look like? Brotherly love means having unity of mind and being sympathetic having a tender heart and, and a humble mind. That, that's where he's driving us to. He's driving us to this idea of brotherly love. And notice brotherly love can't be practiced on your own. None of these things can be practiced on your own. It's really easy to have unity of mind when yours is the only mind involved, right? It's really easy to be unified when you're just unified with yourself. But what we know, like where two or three Christians gather, there will be four or five opinions, right? There, there will be four or five ideas. You can't, you can't practice sympathy if you're, you're just being sympathetic to yourself, right? You, you, it's easy to be humble whenever you're alone, but you can't practice brotherly love on your own, can you? And you can't practice any of these other things without the community, right? Without that relationship. And so what he's showing us here is that authentic faith, it's always lived out in the context of the church. That suffering, it's not an excuse to seclude yourself, but it's a reason to engage. And to come to your brothers and sisters, because so oftentimes what we think is, we think, yeah, well, I need to practice sympathy. 
I need to practice having a tender heart. But what we fail to understand and what we fail to see is oftentimes, maybe it's not that you need to be sympathetic, but maybe it's that you need to encounter sympathy. Right? That you're the one who needs the sympathy, or you're the one who... You're in that moment of suffering, you're in that season of suffering, and you need to experience the tender heart of a, of a brother or a sister. Now, Peter doesn't just throw this on here for no reason, right? He, he doesn't just give us this instruction because he thought that it would fit well here. No, there's a, there's a reason that this is here, and it's because there's a constant danger for Christians and for churches to divide, to engage in self-love rather than in brotherly love. Right, there's, a, there's a constant temptation, a constant danger that rather than having a humble mind, that instead that we would have a prideful heart. Now notice Peter isn't saying here that you need to know this, this, and this. He doesn't say you need to believe this, this, and this because Peter's already covered that. Right, early on in, in 1 Peter 1 and in 1 Peter 2, Peter's laid out this gospel theology. This good, this right, this true theology. Peter's convinced, in fact, that the people that he's writing to are Christians. But what Peter's showing us here is that if we're not careful, what can happen is we can have good gospel theology and fail to live a gospel life. We can, we can know all the right things. We can say all the right things. We can believe all the right things. We can, we can pass the VBS exit exam. Right, like we, we can have it all down, and yet there can be a disconnect where we fail to live a gospel life. Now, this is especially important when it comes to the church. The church should be a place that, that you come knowing that you will be welcomed, and that you will be loved, and that you will be challenged, and that you will be encouraged. The church should be a place where, where we come and we can be re-energized with the gospel of Jesus for the sake of the mission of Jesus. It should be a place where we can come and we can know that it is okay to not be okay. But by God's grace, we will not stay that way. But see, these things only happen. The church is only a place like that when a church is marked not only by gospel theology, but also by a gospel culture. And a gospel culture happens whenever the gospel isn't just preached and isn't just talked about from a stage or a platform or a pulpit or a lectern, but when the gospel is practiced and the gospel is talked about and the gospel is experienced in the lobby and in the hallways and in the parking lot. When the gospel permeates every single thing that we do. That that's what a gospel culture looks like. How, how do we know when we have a gospel culture? I think a gospel culture is something that we're all, always aiming for. It's something that we're always working towards. I heard a gentleman say this week, he said, you'll know that your church has a gospel culture when you can stand up on a Sunday morning and you can say, look for someone that you don't know now go tell them the worst thing you've ever done and ask them to pray for you. I'm getting nervous, right? Uh, uh, some of y'all think, like, is he going to have us do that right now? Yeah, we'll stand up, find a neighbor, right? No, no, that's not. But where we could, you could share that and you could be prayed for and people wouldn't bat an eye because we all would understand 
that we are far more broken and far more sinful than our neighbor realizes. That our need for the gospel of Jesus is far greater than we would care to admit. John Newton, he, he wrote the hymn Amazing Grace. He said, I have, I have great sin and I have a great Savior for my sin. Right? That whenever we understand that, when we understand that we have been loved and we have been forgiven and we have been accepted, not because of what we've done, but because Jesus has saved us, then we begin to have a gospel life. And when we have a gospel life, then we are prepared to walk through suffering with an authentic faith. And as we, we walk through that suffering with that gospel life, and we encourage those around us in our community of faith with our gospel life to live gospel lives, what happens is, is the church becomes a place where the gospel thrives. It becomes a place of gospel culture. It becomes a, a place of gospel hope and gospel peace and gospel healing, it becomes a place where we want to come. I don't know about you, but there, there are times where I wake up on Sunday mornings and I am just hit in the face with how inadequate I have been all week, with how I have failed all week, how I have, I have not been, I've not done what I was supposed to do. I've not been who I was supposed to be. Now, I think that there's some spiritual warfare that happens there. But then I, I come and I'm reminded of the gospel as we, we hopefully sing songs that make much of Jesus. Where we, we get to study the word together and, and cast our eyes towards Jesus. You know, that's, that's what gospel culture, that's how gospel culture begins. And so here, Peter, he's calling us to that. Now he says, he, he shows us in this passage, this, this isn't just practiced in the church, but this also is practiced outside of the church. Uh, many commentators, they believe that, that what Peter's doing here is that verse 8 is speaking to life in the church, and that verse 9 is speaking to life outside the church or life in the world. And, and I think that's probably true, but that the truths of verse 9 are still practiced in the church when verse 8 is obeyed. Look at verse 9. He says, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. This is the most quoted verse in my house, but we don't get the whole thing. It's just, hey, do not repay evil for evil. And my wife is a better Christian than I am, all those things, and our, our kids, right? It's never the, the first one that gets caught. It's the one that retaliates that gets caught, right? And so uh, they will do something, and then we'll say, well, why did you punch your brother? And it's, well, because he did this to me. And then the standard response is, well, hey, the Bible tells us not to repay evil for evil. It's like, yeah, but what about a punch for a punch, right? Like, like just maybe something a little. But no, that do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. There's nothing easy about this instruction. Reviling is just being insulted by the words of others. So he's saying, look, when you are sinned against, don't sin in return. And when, when someone insults you, when someone speaks bad of you, well, don't speak bad of them in return. 
So often when that happens, when someone hurts us, when, when we feel that pain, so oftentimes what we want to do is we don't want to get holy. We want to get even, right? We, we want some payback. We want our pound of flesh. But what Peter says here is that we have not been called to get even. We have been called to trust Jesus with the evil and the reviling that we experience. Jared Wilson says this. He says, the good life is the hard life of trusting Christ. Now notice in this verse that it's not simply that we just ignore the the evil, the reviling that we experience. No, Peter takes it a step further and he commands us to bless those who hurt us. In fact, he goes so far as to say that this is our calling. What is your calling as a believer? What is your calling as a Christian? We'll look at verse nine. He says, bless, for to this you were called. We have been called as believers to bless those who would hurt us. Why do we do this? Because that's exactly what Jesus Christ has done for us. That while we were still enemies, Christ died for us. And see, when we do this, when we, we live like Jesus, what happens is, so what Peter says here in verse 9 is that we obtain a blessing. There's a great blessing in living like Jesus. He empowers us to live like him, and he blesses us as we do. So do you want to be blessed by God? Do you want your life to be blessed by God? Well, then look for ways to bless those in your life who do not deserve it. That's what Peter says here. He says, you, you want to obtain that blessing? You, you want to experience God's blessing in your life? Well, the way that you experience God's blessing in your life is to be a blessing to those who have not deserved it from you. Be a blessing to those who have not earned it. When you do that, you're being like Jesus and you're also giving what you have received. See, if you're a believer, if you're a Christian, then you have received a blessing that you did not deserve and you did not earn. You've been saved by a good and holy and righteous God not because you could earn it or because you could deserve it, but because Jesus won it for you. And so whenever we, when we bless those who sin against us, when we, we bless those who, who practice evil against us, then we are blessed in doing it. You know, one of the things I'm struck by in this passage is that word evil. Do not repay evil for evil. Now, we live in this culture where we want to sanitize everything and make it a little softer, right? We want to make it a little safer. What we've done, though, is we've sanitized it. And so instead of calling it a sin, we call it a mistake. And I think that, well, the Bible, the Bible talks about sin, obviously. But if we really want to understand what sin is, then understand this, that whenever we sin, We are practicing evil. That if if sin is breaking God's law, is falling short of that holy standard, 
then that means that whenever we fail to be holy, we are practicing evil. And I think that changes some things. Because we've almost sanitized sin in some ways. Right? We talk about cultural sins. We talk about sins of things that that just seem to be small. But when we understand that whenever we sin, even if we're sinning against someone who first sinned against us, if you really want to understand what you're doing, if I really want to understand what I'm doing, in that moment I'm practicing evil. And what Peter says here is you and I have been called to do something different. We have been called to bless, to bless those who have not earned it, to, to bless those who have not deserved it. In other words, here's what you and I have been called to do. We have been called to love authentically. Even in our suffering, we have been called to love authentically. But then we see next that we've been called to live authentically. We've been called to live authentically. Peter starts with the what, and then he moves to the how. Right? He shows us how it is that we are to love authentically. And we, we love authentically by living authentically. See, when we love authentically and we live authentically, what happens is, is we prove, even as we suffer, that our faith is authentic. Now, the last three verses of this passage are a quote from Psalm 34. He's quoting from several verses there in Psalm 34. And there's an important point here that we need to understand. And it goes larger than just this passage. It goes to really the entire New Testament. If you want to understand your New Testament better, then you have to understand the Old Testament. Specifically, you have to understand the Psalms. It's like we take 1 Peter, for example. This is the second time he's quoted from Psalm 34. In fact, uh, there have been a few other times where he has alluded to Psalm 34, where it's not a direct quote, but it's an allusion. The New Testament writers do this over and over and over again. Last week, if you were here with us, we looked at 2 Corinthians 9, where Paul quotes from the Psalms. So if you want to understand your New Testament well, you have to understand the Old Testament well. You know, there, there are popular preachers right now who are saying things like, we should unhitch our faith from the Old Testament. No, we should unhitch our earphones from listening to them, right? It, we need the Old Testament. Uh, Augustine, one of the church fathers, he, he said this. He said, in the Old Testament, the new is concealed. In the new, the Old Testament is revealed. Right, so the, the seeds of the gospel, the seeds of Really, everything we see in the New Testament are planted in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, they're shown. Right? In the New Testament, they bear fruit. So look at verse 10. He says, For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. This is the blessing of verse 9. Verse 9, he says, If you do this, you'll obtain a blessing. Verse 10, he shows us what the blessing is. It's, that if you want to love life and you want to see good days, that's the blessing. All right, well, how do, we, how do we obtain that? If we want that blessing, we can have it. It's not a secret. We don't need a book that says how to have a blessed life. No, Peter has told us right here. End of verse 10, he starts with what we must not do. He says, let him, whoever, whoever desires, whoever wants to love life, whoever wants to see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. So he starts with what not to do. Don't speak evil. Don't, 
Don't let deceit come from your, ma- from your mouth. That deceit, that's a lie, right? That's being less than truthful. We've got to protect what we say. We've got to protect our mouths. Constantly seeking to get even or to gain an advantage by being less than truthful is a way to rob yourself of God's blessing. Sam Storms, on this verse, he said this. He said, God simply will not bless those who seek verbal vengeance. In fact, I think it's probably a good practice to begin, to commit to, to decide that most of the time you don't need to defend yourself. That if you are innocent, God will bless you. Right? That you don't need to seek verbal vengeance. Instead, you trust the Lord. Now in verse 11, we have the positive side of this command. He says, let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. We're instructed to turn away from evil, literally to steer clear of evil. But it's not just that. We're also to, to do good. Look, he says, seek peace and pursue it. That, that peace, that That pursuing, that's devoting serious effort. In other words, you and I are to live like Jesus. He says here, don't just simply refrain from evil. Don't just simply ignore evil. Don't just simply not practice evil. No, seek peace. Practice good. And in verse 12, we see the why. He says, for, we could say, because the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. And his ears are open to their prayer. The reason we live this way is that God's eyes are on the righteous to observe and to care for and to protect. You know, I'm excited because we got home from our trunk or treat on Tuesday night. And it was Christmas time, right? Christmas is starting now. Um, and so we, we've started listening to Christmas music in my house, and some of you are judging me for that right now. Um, but I'm not going to repay evil for evil. Um, <laughs> but Christmas is coming, and with Christmas comes Christmas songs. Some are songs that, that we love. Some are songs that, if I don't ever hear Christmas shoes again, I'll be okay, right? But there's a song that we know talks about Santa Claus. He sees you when you're sleeping. He, he knows when you're awake. He, he knows if you've been bad or good, so be good for goodness sake. I, I was convinced growing up that my mom must know Santa Claus because she knew everything I did, right? I would get home and she already, she already knew. And I think sometimes what happens is, is we confuse God's omniscience, his all-knowing, his omnipresence, his everywhereness, we think that God is like Santa Claus. And that he sees us when we're sleeping. He knows when we're awake. He knows if we've been bad. He, he knows us if we've been good. So be good for goodness sake. But then we add in this little, this little refrain, because if you're not good, God's going to get you. Right? If you're not good, God's going to take it out on you. But here in verse 12, when it says the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, it's not talking about that. He's saying that the, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous to observe and to care for and to protect. 
That God isn't in heaven waiting for you to mess up so that he can get you. Instead, he's pleased as we obey. And what happens when we obey? Verse 12 says, his ears are open to their prayer. More than once, Peter has tied answered prayers to obedience. Earlier in chapter 3, he has told husbands that if you fail to live with your wife in an understanding way, then you hinder your prayers. That God will not hear your prayers. What we see here is that obedience leads to blessing and disobedience leads to discipline. And discipline isn't always bad. The book of Hebrews tells us that the Lord disciplines those whom he loves. He, he brings us back to him. But in verse 12, we see what the Lord thinks of sin and what the Lord thinks of evil. At the end, he says, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. I want us to be clear here that God has not changed from the Old Testament to the New Testament. God is not indifferent to sin. He, he is against those who do evil. He, he is against those who practice evil. And in one sense, this is good news. This is good news for us because it means that God is just and that God is the judge. And so what that means is that any justice that happens on this earth is only uh, half justice, right? It's not full justice. It's not complete justice. But what it means is that even when someone is allowed to get away or people are allowed to get away with injustice, what it means is that no matter what, one day they will stand before God, the righteous judge. Right? No matter what, before one day they will be judged. But there's a problem here for you and I as well. We do evil. We practice evil. We sin. None of us obey perfectly. And God has not changed. He is still against anyone and everyone who practices evil. But here's the good news. Jesus died to save evil people like me and like you. He died to save sinners like me and like you. Now, if we're not careful, we'll misunderstand what Peter is saying here. We think that Peter and, and the psalmist, that they're telling us that if we're just good enough, then everything will be okay. If we just behave enough, then God will love us. Then, then God will bless us. But that's not, that's not what they're telling us. So you've got to understand that you can't be good enough. I can't be good enough. We can't be good enough. And said, what this passage is calling us to is it's calling us to, to faith and dependence on the only one who has been perfectly righteous. When we trust Jesus, his righteousness becomes ours. It's credited to us. It's what the theologians, they say, it is imputed to us. That when we trust Christ, all of his perfection is given to us. And then what happens is all of our sin, all of our evil is given to him. It's this great exchange. And when our sin is given to Jesus and his righteousness is given to us, then his blessing is given to us as well. His blessing becomes ours. And so when we, by faith, are trusting in Christ, we are given his righteousness, then what happens is we are made righteous. 
And we're not made righteous. We're not made right before God by what we do or by what we don't do. No, we are made righteous simply because of what Jesus has done. The message of the gospel is not do more. The message of the gospel is it's already done. The, The message of the gospel is to trust in Jesus. And as we put our faith in Jesus, we are made righteous. And what happens when we are made righteous is that the eyes of the Lord are on us to bless us and to protect us and to keep us. When we are made righteous, his ears are open to our prayers. But there's there's not more than one way to skin this cat. There's only one way to be made righteous, and that's through faith in Jesus Christ who has lived in your place was punished in your place died in your place rose again in your place and now lives victoriously in a place that he has gone to prepare for you the only way you can be made righteous is to trust in him see suffering it reveals the authenticity of our faith so understand this, that if your life does not look like Jesus when you're not suffering, your life is not going to look like Jesus when you do suffer. The only way to have a Jesus-marked life, the, the only way to have this authentic faith, the only way to love authentically and to live authentically is to trust Jesus authentically. It is to trust Jesus genuinely. That's good news is that's available for anyone and everyone who who would trust him. Anyone and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Man, what a promise. Isn't that a good promise? Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And it's not that that he might get there in time. It's not that he might show up. No, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved right then. Will be saved. Will be regenerated. Will be made new. Will be marked by Jesus. That is good news. That's good news that we hold on to, that we cling to. And that's good news that we should hold on to and we should cling to. The problem is, is that so oftentimes we get tempted by other things, don't we? As believers, as Christians, we know that we should hold tight to the gospel of Jesus, that gospel hope. And what we think, though, is that, well, I can hold Hold on to hope in Jesus over here and hope in something else over here. And, and then when, when what I was holding on over here starts to slip out of my hand, starts to slip out of my fingers, then what I do is I let go of this to grab this. Because if God really loved me, he would want me to have this. If God really loved me, he would, he would want me to hold on to this. So I'm going to hold on to this really tight, and then I'll see if I can grab back over here. And what happens when we do that is typically that happens in seasons of suffering. And where we're losing our grip over here so that we can grab on to this thing over here, whatever that thing may be. And when we let go of this, what we do is we prove that our faith isn't authentic. But in times of suffering, when we start to lose this over here, 
and we let it fall so that we can hold on to Jesus with both hands, then we prove that our faith is authentic. And the way that we develop that kind of faith is to constantly be reminded of the good news of Jesus. It's to constantly keep our eyes and our gaze and our focus on Jesus. 